Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Today, we're going to talk about the perfect Charlotte Mason education. There are four stages that a lot of Charlotte Mason educators go through. Maybe not all of them, but maybe most Charlotte Mason educators go through these. You kind of start with the interested stage, and then you move on to the influenced stage, and then the intentional stage. And then many people try to reach this fourth stage called the impeccable stage. And so let me talk about each one of these four stages. So the the first stage for a Charlotte Mason educator is getting into the the interested stage. And for many people, it's uh, somebody hands them or sends them a copy of For the Children's Sake. And uh, they read this book and they discover what a beautiful education is described by Susan Schaefer McCulley. And uh, they get a vision or, or a picture of some ideal thing that they'd like to have for their children and for their family. And so they decide that they want to find out more. And so then often after the interested stage, they move into the influenced stage. So here you will find people who will say, you know, I, I read for the children's sake and I, and I heard about uh, narration or I heard about nature study and keeping a nature journal. And so in this stage, what happens is that families or, or homeschoolers are doing perhaps what, what they were doing before, but they start to import ideas um, that they've picked up along the way from Charlotte Mason. And what happens is, as they start to import some of these practices like nature study, narration, living books, dictation, and other activities like that, um, they start to see wonderful results in themselves and in their children. And so then they want to go deeper. And so that often leads them to the third stage, which is the intentional stage. And in the intentional stage, um, what happens is that the Charlotte Mason educator says, I don't want to just be have Charlotte Mason influences in what I'm doing. I actually want to be intentional about doing a kind of end-to-end Charlotte Mason education. And so in this stage, the homeschooler will often turn to a packaged Charlotte Mason curriculum, like something from Simply Charlotte Mason or Ambleside Online or the Alviary or whatever. So they'll find some kind of curriculum that they want to use because they want to be very intentional about uh, following Charlotte Mason completely. And uh, what that can often lead to is this fourth stage. And uh, this is what I call the impeccable stage. And this is where people want to do the perfect Charlotte Mason education. So it's not good enough to just be intentional. They want to be perfect about it. And so this is the impeccable stage. And so if you're in the interested or the influence stage, that's fine. Just hang on for two or three months and then come back because people don't stay interested or influenced for very long. Um, Charlotte Mason is just that good that uh, they quickly move on and want to go deeper. So if you don't feel like this quite describes you yet, just just hang on for a couple months and, uh, and you'll be wanting to be more intentional. What I want to kind of ask the question is, what, what is the allure 
of the perfect Charlotte Mason education. So why is it that so many of us are not happy to just stay at the intentional stage, but want to go further and reach this kind of state of, of perfection? Why is that? And what is the allure? And I would say, I, I think there's kind of three possible reasons and I'll call them the good reasons, maybe the bad reasons and kind of the ugly reasons. So some, some easy ways to, to remember these three. So I'll start with kind of the, the good reason. And to explain the good reason why many of us wanna to move to that perfect Charlotte Mason education, one way to explain that is this happiness graph. And uh, so this is a chart that I saw um, once and uh, you know, it's not, not really scientifically done, but boy, is it true to life. So on, on the, the um, kind of the y-axis of our graph, we have happiness. And so if you're higher on the graph, you're happier. If you're lower on the graph, you're less happy. And then on the horizontal axis um, is your age. And so before children, uh, before you have children, so when you're kind of a young adult, you haven't had kids yet, your happiness, you know, kind of goes up and down, um, but it goes up and down by relatively small swings. And then what happens, <laughs> is that you have children and then suddenly the happiness meter just goes haywire because you had these moments of just wonderful joy with your family and with your children that you never had before you had children. But then on the other hand, you experience these valleys and these, these moments of despair um, because suddenly you want so much for your children and you want the best for them and you feel such a sense of responsibility. And uh, when, when you see your children blossoming and flourishing and being happy, it brings you great joy. But at the same time, suddenly now, your happiness is tied up in kind of the, the growth and development of these human beings who uh, when they're not doing well or when they're suffering or when they're making poor choices or when bad things are happening in their life, it's, it's devastating. And so trying to get a grip on, on this, this, how to live in the right-hand side of this graph um, is I think part of the motivation. So take a moment and think about, you know, what do you want for your children. And, um, and if you were to ask me what I want for my children, you know, some of the things that I would want them to have is, is a lifelong love for Jesus. I, I want my children to fulfill each one of their unique calling in the world. I want each of my children to be able to be the best that God has for them in their vocation and in their life. And I want them to attain a kind of ongoing maturity and joy. Now, how, how do we know if we're, how do I know if I'm on track to getting there? How do I know if what I'm doing today is actually going to lead towards these outcomes that are so important to my happiness? And so there's a phenomenon where it's called a proxy indicator. And this is a phenomenon that's used very often in many different fields and in many different disciplines. And, and a proxy indicator is, is an indirect measure or sign that approximates or represents a phenomenon in the absence of a direct measure or sign. So the idea here is that some things are so hard to measure that instead of trying to measure the thing directly, you find some indirect thing that kind of gives you an idea of the exact measurement. Um, so for example, you may not know how many people like a particular movie, uh, but what you can do is do a survey of just a sub, a small population and that survey becomes a, a proxy indicator of, of whether more people are gonna like that movie. And so when we apply the proxy indicator to the, the challenge of being a parent, the fact of the matter is I can't measure if I'm on track to giving my children everything that they need. 
I don't know if I'm being successful. There's no way for me to really determine if they're growing and maturing the way that I want them to. But what I can do is I can measure how close I am to the perfect Charlotte Mason education. So what happens is that because I can't measure what the growth that's really happening in my children's hearts, and I'm looking for some kind of proxy measure, I can latch onto how, how well I'm doing at Charlotte Mason because that's my proxy. And I can say, well, if I'm doing Charlotte Mason education well, then I'm just gonna believe that that means that I'm on track to giving my children everything that they need. And so that's a, I think that's a reasonable, probably a fairly good reason why people want to, uh, to have that perfect Charlotte Mason education, but I'll share a little bit later why, why I think that's problematic. And then there's what I would say is kind of a not so good motivation to want to have the perfect Charlotte Mason education. And I call this conforming to your tribe. So, um, you know, we have a, we all as human beings have this powerful urge to fit in with a particular group. And when you're, when you found your tribe or your group, you want to be accepted by them. You want to be like them. You don't, you don't want to be different. And so there's this powerful urge to conform to certain norms that you see in the Charlotte Mason community. And, uh, you know, one event that I went to, you can see me in this picture. This was a Charlotte Mason event that I went to, and I had a blast. It was an absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, but I'm just, uh, you know, showing this picture as an illustration of, of just the, the, the force the powerful urge to conform with your tribe that, that comes upon you. Like when you're in an event like this, you know, and everybody's wearing the t-shirt and everybody's doing the Charlotte Mason thing, it's, it's, you really don't want to be the outlier who's doing something the wrong way or who's doing something a different way or who's, or who's not, doing, not answering the question the right Charlotte Mason way. And so it's an understandable influence or pressure, but it's not necessarily a good reason to do certain things. And then there's kind of the ugly reason. I think the ugly reasons for why we want to maybe have the perfect Charlotte Mason education is kind of vanity. I mean, I, I don't know if there's any is thinking about wanting to show on Instagram that they have kind of the, the right or the best or the, you know, the perfect Charlotte Mason home. Even kind of more disturbing than, than the vanity side is, is with pride. Um, because with pride, if I, you know, the perfect Charlotte Mason education can actually offer a way, you know, to prove to myself that I really am better than somebody else. And so that's kind of the dark side of, of um, wanting to have this perfect Charlotte Mason education. And so I would say that whether your motivation is for the good reason, the proxy, or the bad reason, conformance, or the ugly reason, pride or vanity, I would say that that it doesn't, the idea of a perfect Charlotte Mason education doesn't really succeed in any of these three dimensions. And I'll give two reasons why that's the case. First of all, is I will submit to you that, that the perfect Charlotte Mason education is not attainable. And secondly, I would say that it is not authentic. And I wanna explore these two dimensions. First of all, I believe that, that the true uh, perfection in the Charlotte Mason model is not attainable. And I'm just gonna give you a couple of examples of why I believe this to be the case. So let's say you're, you're focusing now on younger children who are up to age six. Now we read in home education, um, Charlotte Mason uh, says, I make a point, says a judicious mother, of sending my children out weather permitting for an hour in the winter and two hours a day in the summer months. You think, wow, that's pretty good. You know, how many of us will send out our children for an hour every day in the winter? So what's the next paragraph? Is Charlotte Mason going to say, you know, rock and roll, this is a great mother? No, Charlotte Mason says that as well, but it's not enough. 
in the first place, don't just send them out. If it's any way possible, take them out. And long hours, they should be not two, but four, five, or six hours that they should have on every tolerably fine day from April to October. Now, I know a lot of parents of children younger than six who are doing Charlotte Mason, but I know very, very few, if any, who are spending six hours per day outdoors from April to October with their children. Maybe there are a few. But for those few, do they have older children and are those older children also doing everything else that's gonna come up on these next slides? By age 12, so in school education, there's a list of attainments that every child should have by age 12. Now, I know a lot of 12 year olds who can do a lot of things on this list, but I'm not sure that I have ever met a 12 year old who can do every single item on this list. There's a lot of stuff on this list that ranges from language skills to math skills, um, history and geography, grammar, Bible, singing and solfa, drills, drawing, music. Um, the thing that I, that I find uh, you know, very difficult to, to, to achieve across all of this wide range. Um, so for example, who can, who, how many 12 year olds can read both in Latin and in French and speak a little bit of German and be doing basket making and have doing some elementary algebra and starting to do some geometry, all of that by age 12. Now, and remember that you only had from age seven to age 12 to accomplish all these things because you were spending six hours out of day, out of, uh, outdoors every day up until age six. And then if you've got now, if you're a parent of children at the high school age, so if you look at the program for a 17-year-old, if you look at like PNEU program 116, a 17-year-old was expected to read these four books, um, La Fleur Merveilleuse in French, The Aenid Number 7 by Virgil in Latin, Sol Unhaben in German, and Il Purgatorio by uh, Dante in classical Italian. So, I don't know that I've ever met anyone in my life who can read all four of these books in the original language, let alone a 17-year-old who can do so. And so if you're aiming for the perfect Charlotte Mason education, I would just ask, like, are you on track to be able to have your 17-year-old uh, accomplish the feat of reading all of these four books? That's just the curriculum. Now, if we look at habits, Here's just a list of some of the habits that Charlotte Mason talks about as should be attributes of, of anyone putting into practice her method. I put these in alphabetical order, um, but these habits are attention, courtesy, devotional reading, diligence, eager inquiry, gentleness, neatness, praise and thanksgiving, prayer, prompt obedience, promptness, quick perception, reading, regularity and devotions, reverence and thought, attitude, act and speech, self-control, Sunday keeping, sweet thoughts, the thought of God, truthfulness. And let just that thought of God is uh, this idea of the habit of the thought of God such that, um, so that, such that the child is always mindful and conscious of God's presence in everything that he or she does. So what I would say is if you want to have the perfect Charlotte Mason education and you are not putting into practice a plan to develop all of these habits in your children, then you're not really going to achieve it. Um, then if we move on to the area of atmosphere, there's so many things that we could say about atmosphere, but I wanna just mention a couple of things that Charlotte Mason, you know, atmosphere is both the people that we're around, but it's also the, the physical environment that we're in and the home. And uh, Charlotte Mason says, for example, we shall permit no pseudo art 
to be in the same house with our children? Do you have any pseudo art in your home? Have you qualified every decoration and every work of art in your home? Uh, the child who sits down to a crumpled or spotted tablecloth or uses a discolored metal spoon is degraded. If I went into your house, would I see a spotted tablecloth? Then that's something you need to think about. The children should be brought up to think that when once an article is made unsightly by soil or fracture, it is spoiled and must be replaced. Is that the standard you keep for maintenance of objects in your home? And then Charlotte Mason said that the lawless habit of scattering should not be allowed to grow upon children. The lawless habit of scattering, leaving stuff lying around. So even just taking a look at your home, if you have, if you have a challenge in any of these areas, then that idea of the perfect Charlotte Mason uh, education is not really close at hand. And so one thing that we, I think in human nature, we still try to you know, achieve that. So one way that, that in our maybe vanity and pride, we can still try to achieve that perfection is to redefine this incredibly high standard that Charlotte Mason has outlined in her six volumes and redefine it in a way that makes it attainable. And to me, that, that idea of redefining it such that it's within our reach and such that we can say, I've achieved it, I'm doing all of these things. To me, that's, that's almost exactly what the Pharisees did. You know, the Pharisees found that God's perfect law was so, it was so unachievable that they redefined it to something that they could achieve and then they could proudly say that they had done so. And to me, that is uh, a mistake to redefine Charlotte Mason's ideals into something that we are able to achieve. And so I think the second dimension is with this idea of perfection is not only is it not achievable, but I don't believe that it is actually truly authentic. I don't think that it really represents what Charlotte Mason had in mind in terms of the advice and guidance that she gave to parents. And here's where I want to start on that point of authentic. Charlotte Mason wrote in Home Education that if a human being were a machine, then education could do no more for him than to set him in action in prescribed ways. And the work of the educator would be to simply adopt a good working system or set of systems. And I think that set of systems is what I've just shown you on the previous slides. But the fact of the matter is that the educator is not dealing with a machine, but the educator is dealing with a self-acting, self-developing being. Every child is unique and every parent is unique. And your business as a parent is to guide and assist in the production of the latent good in that being, the dissipation of the latent evil, the preparation of the child to take his place in the world at his best, his best with every capacity for good that is in him developed into a power. And the second reason you know, why I think that, um, that this idea of perfection is not authentically Charlotte Mason is also even Charlotte Mason herself in school education, when she describes the ambitious lofty range of her curriculum, she says, we cannot of course overtake such a program of work. In other words, we can't truly achieve everything that we've set out to do, but we can keep it in view. And I suppose every life is molded upon its ideal. Another thing that I like to say is, hey, if I aim for the stars, then maybe I'll make it to the moon. Um, so we can't overtake it. We can't achieve all of this end-to-end this -end goodness that's been described, but we can keep it in view and we can hold it up as an ideal. And that ideal can be how we mold our life. 
And so I think if you, what I would say is to kind of live at this intentional level and to be content at the intentional level and to resist the allure of reaching the impeccable, we almost have to experience something similar to what Jesus described in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who said, I am so thankful that I have, that I have arrived and that I've achieved everything. Now, the tax collector doesn't say, hey, I'm so thankful that I've that, I, that uh, you know, that, that I'm, that I have a, a rotten life. No, what he says is he acknowledges the ideal. He, he acknowledges that there's a wonderful ideal that he wishes to strive for, but he also is realistic and accepts the fact of how far he is short of that ideal. And he lives in that tension and is okay to live in that tension. And I think that to, to truly implement Charlotte Mason's ideas authentically, I think we have to be content to live in that same state of, of tension between the ideal and the reality. And uh, so I think that um, what can happen is, uh, is if we're not careful, and if we don't um, hold ourselves at that intentional stage without slipping into the impeccable stage, you know, we, we face a choice in terms of whether we want to look at Charlotte Mason and all of her wonderful ideals as either a mentor or as a master. And I want to explain to you the difference between those two. At the end of the day, the greatest, I think, responsibility of a parent, a homeschooling parent or any parent at all, is first to understand your calling. What has God called you as a parent to do? And then secondly, is to fulfill your calling. Now, the good news that I have is that Charlotte Mason can help you understand your calling. And Charlotte Mason can help you fulfill your calling. But is she your mentor or is she your master? If she's your mentor, then your calling comes first. If she's your master, then the rules come first. If she's your mentor, then the principles serve you because the principles are helping you to fulfill your calling. But on the other hand, if she's your master, then you serve the principles. If Charlotte Mason is your mentor, then still at the end of the, of the day, you take responsibility for the, the results at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of the upbringing of your child, you take responsibility for the results. But if Charlotte Mason is your master and things don't work out the way you want, then you end up blaming Charlotte Mason for the results. And lastly, if Charlotte Mason is your mentor, then Charlotte Mason is a means to an end. But if Charlotte Mason is your master, then it's the tragic thing is that the means actually becomes the end. And when I talk about this idea of taking responsibility for the results, ultimately what's gonna matter in the grand scheme of things for me as a parent and what I've experienced in my own life is that the scorecard, what the, the scorecard that really ultimately matters to me, when, when my grown-up children have come to me with, with their challenges in life or when I've had to face my failings as a parent or my poor choices, I have never been able to or wanted to or thought that I could say to my grown child, well, I, this is what Charlotte Mason said to do. No, I've had to take responsibility and say, this is the choice that I made. And I have to take responsibility for that. And some of the hardest work that I've done as a parent has actually been with my older children or even my grown children to help work with them, to support them, to address gaps that I've made or failures that I've made along the way as a parent. Thankfully, Charlotte Mason was there to help me and mentor me, but at the end of the day, I'm the one who's responsible for what has happened. Someday you will answer to your grown children for the choices you made as a parent. So my view, take it for what it's worth, is that Charlotte Mason's wonderful life-giving ideals are best suited to helping a parent fulfill her holy obligations, not to easing her conscience 
or giving her assurance that she's doing a good job. I think that the latter is not, is a misuse of the Charlotte Mason method. So what I'd like to point to then is if we wanna be intentional and authentic about implementing a Charlotte Mason education, I wanna point out three keys to applying the method in what I believe to be is the best and most, most fruitful way to help you fulfill your calling as a parent. The first is conscience, the second is context, and the third is calling. So I wanna speak first for a minute about conscience. Charlotte Mason held up above almost a, as a high point or an elevated point in her principles, the importance of the mother's intuition. In the opening pages of Home Education, she quotes F.D. Maurice when she says, the woman receives from the spirit of God himself the intuitions into the child's character, the capacity of appreciating its strengths and its weaknesses, the faculty of calling forth the one and sustaining the other, in which lies the mystery of education, apart from which all its rules and measures are utterly vain and ineffectual. So all of the rules, all of the measures, all of the standards have no value outside of or independent of your relationship with your children and your relationship with the Holy Spirit and the intuition that the Spirit of God is giving you. The rules, the measures, the insights, the ideas, the guidance are all supporting factors to help you as you walk in your unique relationship with your child, and as you are informed by the Spirit of God in terms of how you put these ideas into practice for the children's sake and for the best of your children. And so I believe that it's a matter of conscience. The biggest, I think, and most sacred part of your mother's intuition is this element of conscience. And I believe conscience must always be your guide as you homeschool and as you implement the Charlotte Mason method. And I think when it comes to conscience, there's so many things that could be said about it, but I just wanna highlight two particular factors from conscience. First are your beliefs and second are your values. I'm just gonna give one example around beliefs. I'm gonna give an example of, of commentaries. And so from all the forms, from form one through form six in the historical program, Charlotte Mason recommended commentaries to be used for the teacher, for the student and teacher, and for the student in the later years. And I'm gonna give you an example of one of the commentaries that was chosen for the book of Acts, um, a book that was uh, written by Ellen M. Knox, who was the first principal of an Anglican girls school in Canada. Um, it's kind of a commentary. It was published in 1908. Charlotte Mason reviewed it two years later in the Parents Review in 1910. And then it was in use in the Parents Union School from 1913 on. So I guess what I, the reason I bring this up as an example is, is it responsible or proper for us as contemporary Charlotte Mason educators to say, this is the commentary that I should use when I'm studying Acts? I'm not saying it's a bad choice. And when I've talked about this, I, I got a response from someone who said, we used this commentary in our homeschool and it was wonderful. And I think that's fantastic. I'm sure that, it, that it, I, I've, I've actually read through and was going through it myself. And it is a wonderful book. And I understand why Charlotte Mason recommended it. And it's a living book. And yet for me and for my conscience as a teacher and for some specific areas of theology that were important to me, it was not the right choice for my family. And I don't believe that it would be proper for me to follow the rules instead of to follow my conscience. But instead, the right thing for me to do is to find a living book that reflects the beliefs that we have as a family. 
And so remember that if you look at the commentaries that Charlotte Mason selected, every single one of them was written by an Anglican and for use in an Anglican context. Does that mean that all Charlotte Mason educators, whether you're Baptist or Catholic or Methodist or, or evangelical free or non-denominational, that, that these Anglican commentaries are the ones for you? Some of them are great. I plan to, and I've used the Dumbelow commentary and will continue to use it. But my point is this, one school is not more, one Charlotte Mason school is not more or less perfect based on which commentary they're using. But Charlotte Mason can help us to choose the right one on the principles of which ones are living books. The second example that I wanna give is around your values. And I think that your values are given to you by God and by your relationship with the Holy Spirit. What do you want your children to learn? I'll just give you one example. Your children are citizens of the entire world, in my view, not only the West. And I just want to share a quote from Charlotte Mason from School Education. She said that our sense of the oneness of humanity reaches into the remotest past, making us regard with tender reverence every relic of the antiquity of our own people or of any other, any other, any other. That means the whole world. The oneness of humanity stretches to every continent, every people group. Every creed is joined together in this oneness of humanity. And so I believe that the, the authentic Charlotte Mason educator follows her conscience in this area. And so I go on record, I'm going to say this right now publicly, that I reject, categorically reject any and all arguments for confining Charlotte Mason history instruction at any level to just Western history. I don't buy it because I believe that we're citizens of the world. And those are my values. And, if, you, and if, you, if your values guide you in a similar direction, then I think that that is an authentic Charlotte Mason practice. So then I wanna talk about the second C, the second area, and this is context. So context, I believe, always must be kept in mind when we try to understand Charlotte Mason's method. We need to remember that she developed all of her writings about which books to use and which techniques to use and which models to use and so on were based on her specific context, which was a time and a period and a culture. And so the approach that I like to use two articles which describe this called uh, Towards an Authentic Interpretation and Applying an Authentic Interpretation. The method that I like to follow is first to go and look at what Charlotte Mason actually did in her historical P and EU schools. Now, step two is not go and then just reproduce it exactly to the letter in our modern context. No, I don't believe that's step two. I believe step two then is to look at what Charlotte Mason did in her schools and then try to deduce what principles inform those practices. So it's not just a matter of saying, this is the commentary that Charlotte Mason used for the book of Acts. Instead, it's saying, why did she choose that? What were the attributes? What were the principles which informed those choices and those practices? Then take those principles, now that we've been able to deduce them and, and understand them and infer them and apply those practices to our, you know, some of us North Americans, some of us other, you know, uh, England, Philippines, wherever you are, to our modern 21st century context. But then I think there's an important fourth step, which is to then further apply those principles to your unique situation. So we can pull together in groups and there are groups can put together Charlotte Mason curricula and they can accomplish step three, but only you can accomplish step four. Nobody's gonna do that for you because only you are the unique parent that God has selected for your children. Only you have the very specific conscience that the Holy Spirit is informing in the raising of these very specific children.
And I believe that to authentically interpret Charlotte Mason, you need to apply that fourth step. So then the third C, the third area of applying Charlotte Mason is this idea of calling. And now when I'm talking about calling here, I'm talking about your child's calling. And what I wanna bring out here is the notion that your child is unique. And uh, Charlotte Mason in her fourth volume in book one, she says, each person in whatever station requires preparation for his calling. And remember the word vocation comes from the, the Latin word uh, call. So vocation and calling basically mean the same thing. So every person in whatever station, no matter what your calling is, there's two things that every person needs to have. First, they need the general preparation of being a person ready and fit. But they also need a special preparation of training and teaching for the particular work in question. There are two kinds of preparations that every human being requires in order to attain to the fullness of what God has for them. The first one, the general preparation, this is preparation for life. And the way Charlotte Mason describes this preparation for life is she says, the question is not in school education, the question is not how much does the youth know? It's not about competence. It's not about how much does he know when he's finished his education, but how much does he care and about how much order of things does he, and how many order of things does he care? In fact, how large is the room in which he finds his feet set and therefore how full is the life he has before him? It is the man who has read and thought on many subjects who is with the necessary training the most capable, whether in handling tools, drawing plans or keeping books. So no matter what, every child needs preparation for life and that's about breadth and fullness and the science of relations. But let's not overlook the vocation, and Charlotte Mason acknowledges in, in ourselves, some boys, she says, at an early age know that they're actually being brought up for a very specific vocation. Now, that doesn't mean that you ignore the left-hand side and that, you, that if you know that somebody's going to be prepared for the Navy, that therefore you don't expose them to poetry and all the riches of the feast. But what it does mean is that sometimes you need to take special attention to special requirements for a particular vocation or calling that your child may have. And I believe Charlotte Mason acknowledges this. I'm not going to read this full quote here, the second paragraph in the second box here, but the idea is that Charlotte Mason herself acknowledged, I'm quoting here now, she acknowledged that sometimes in form six, you need to change a path a little bit different because you may need to be preparing for a matriculation exam, in which case Latin and mathematics in her time period, we're going to take a different level of focus than otherwise what was in the general program. Charlotte Mason had that allowance for the particular calling that an individual might have. And I believe that in our day and age, it is essential that you understand and start to take notice of the calling, the unique calling that your children may have, and that you have the foresight to think about whether any special preparation might be required for them. I'd like to give an example. I met a lady once who's a veterinarian. And I said, uh, tell me about it. Why, why are you a veterinarian? Like, how did that come about? And she said, well, I decided when I was six years old that I was going to be a veterinarian. And I never looked back. So here's somebody who decided, now imagine if her parents had not had the foresight to think about what kinds of preparation or things that she would need to be, that she would have to learn in order to be able to get qualified for the professional training that she would need in order to achieve this goal that she had made. So I think it's important that you listen to your children and listen to their dreams and understand that and never neglect what's on the left-hand side, but take some time to think about what's on the right-hand side. And that idea of vocation is not a one-size-fits-all because that's going to be unique 
to your particular child? Is your child has a, does your child have a great interest in music such that he or she may become a, a musician at some point? Then, then piano lessons in your home, in that case, are probably going to look different from piano lessons in my home. But we'll be studying music in all of our homes. But there's going to be a different emphasis. And the perfect Charlotte Mason education is not going to tell you what that is. It is going to be your relationship with your children and your relationship with the Holy Spirit that's going to tell you what that balance is. And now I do want to kind of, as an aside, I do want to say that there is so much goodness in Charlotte Mason's, in Charlotte Mason's ideas that sometimes even doing things for the wrong reasons leads to wonderful results. And this is my kind of, this is my confessional. This is my, I did it for Charlotte Mason like moment. I'm going to tell you about things that, you know, a lot of things that I did with Charlotte Mason, I, I had an intrinsic love for the goodness of them, like nature study, living books, all those things. When I was in the interested stage and the influence stage, like I love those things and I wanted to embrace them, but there were certain others that I wasn't too keen on, but at some point I felt like, you know what, I need to like, if I'm going to be going around talking about Charlotte Mason and writing about Charlotte Mason, I need to have experience with this stuff. And so there are some things that I kind of started doing, not because of my inherent love for them, but I did it for Charlotte Mason. I did it because I wanted street cred. And you know what, I've gotten wondrously joyous results from these things. And I'm so glad that I did them for Charlotte Mason. And so this is kind of my point here is, I'm not trying to bash anything in the feast or any aspect of what you're hearing about Charlotte Mason. All I'm saying is that, uh, is that we need to understand the, the three points of the conscience, context, and calling. But brush drawing, Latin, Plutarch, Sloyd, these are things that I never would have done if not for my desire to do things the Charlotte Mason way. And boy, am I glad that I chose to do those things because the results have been great. And there's probably areas that I'm still neglecting that if I did them, I would come back to you next year and, and add two or three more things to this list. Um, and then I want to mention that, uh, you know, with this idea of the preparation for life and preparation for vocation, both of these are developed by knowledge and both can be taught in a living way. Now, how do we know if we've prepared our children for life? Charlotte Mason answered that question in the science of relations. It's the question of how much does he care? The way we know if we're preparing our children for the vacation is more measurable and it's more based on competencies and we have to keep track of that. But even though these are measured differently, they both can be taught in a living way. Charlotte Mason wrote in Parents and Children that we are told that the spirit is life and therefore that which is dead, dry as dust, mere bare bones can have no affinity with him. There is no subject which has not a fresh and living way of approach. I believe this with all of my heart. And so I believe that whether you are teaching African history or computer programming, there is a fresh and living way to teach it. Whether you are teaching for life or vocation, there is a fresh and living way to teach it. And so what I would urge you to do is if you find yourself going off the beaten path, and if you're doing things that don't really look like they're not in your curriculum, they don't look like the perfect Charlotte Mason education, but you feel because of your conscience or your calling or your context that you should be doing these subjects take hope because there is a living way to do it there's a way that charlotte mason can mentor you and help you to teach these subjects in a living way don't despair and don't give up so there are no formulas but there is a framework that can help you make your decisions and the framework is atmosphere, discipline in life atmosphere are the circumstances these circumstances help form habits and inspire and prepare our hearts to receive ideas. Ideas inspire habits. Habits invite new ideas. Atmosphere, discipline, and life. 
Under atmosphere, we have things like masterline activity, the mother's attitudes, people that the child is exposed to in the home environment. Under discipline, we have the lifestyle of habit, and we also have the corrective habits that we bring into place. And then education is a life, talks about books and things. And so in the banquet, I would say to prepare your children for life, you need to look at this list and include everything that you possibly can from this list to prepare your children for life. And so I'm just going to go through um, some questions that I like to ask someone to kind of say, if, you, if you're willing to let go of the impeccable stage four and the perfect Charlotte Mason education and instead want to focus on the intentional application of Charlotte Mason's ideas in your life, in your context, here are some questions that I would uh, bring to your attention. The Holy Spirit, what does your intuition tell you is working or not working in your homeschool? What do you feel bad about? What do you feel good about? Are you teaching every subject in a living way? Do some of the subjects that you're putting into practice don't seem living to you? Preparation. Do one or more of your children have a sense of future calling? What competencies do you want your children to have to prepare them for their vocation? Do you have a plan and a schedule to develop those competencies? And extremely important, are your children developing care for a wide range of subjects? Are you preparing them for life? Under atmosphere, do you practice masculine activity? What ideas are your children breathing in from your spiritual atmosphere, the ideas that rule your life? What opportunities do your children have to meet people outside your family? Is your home physically set up in a way that reflects your values? Do you have pseudo art in your home or is your home beautiful? In discipline, do you leverage consistent routines as much as possible? Does your family have a lifestyle that reflects your beliefs about education? Is there anything your family does that undermines the habits you are trying to form? And then for life, are all of the elements of the banquet that I showed on a previous slide, are all of those uh, elements reflected in some way in your homeschool? And do your children participate in the banquet in ways outside of standard lessons, choir, team sports, and so on? So those are some questions that, that I would ask you to think about as another way to approach living intentionally with the Charlotte Mason method. To view the slides referenced in this audio presentation, please visit the show notes page. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.